When we look around at our culture and we look around in the world and in the climate that we find ourselves in that seems to grow increasingly secular and maybe not respectful of values of faith, sometimes maybe it's hard to imagine that many generations of faith even remaining. My children and their children and, and their children. But I want to tell you today, the greatest threat against our families and the church, it's not external. It's not what's out there. It's really what's in here. It's what's in here. And one of the most destructive and damaging things that can possibly come against any community is unforgiveness. It's an unforgiving spirit. It's not extending the same grace to others that Christ has extended to us when we came to know Him as our Lord and as our Savior. Amen. You see, Satan is a bondage maker. He's a destroyer. He is a murderer from the beginning. And Satan desires to wreak havoc on people of faith that know and love Jesus Christ. In our text this morning, I'll read it, 2 Corinthians chapter number 2, and beginning in verse 1, it says, Paul says to this church, but I determined this with myself, that I would not come again to you in heaviness. For if I make you sorry, who is he then that makes me glad, but the same which is made sorry by me? And I wrote this same to you, lest when I come, I should have sorrow from them of whom I ought to rejoice." having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. But if any have caused grief, he has not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many." So that contrary wise, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Wherefore I beseech, I beg, I plead with you that you would confirm your love toward him. For to this end also did I write that I might know the proof of you, whether you be obedient in all things. To whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything to whom I forgave it, for your sakes I forgave it in the person of Christ, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now let me give you a little background. This is a follow-up letter to a previous letter Paul had written to this church called 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul wrote to the church and he was writing about an issue that was going on in the church that was pretty egregious. There was a man in this church who was living in a sexual relationship with his father's wife, his stepmother. And it wasn't a secret, it was open, it was known in the church. And by the way, the time we would be in history in the early church right there, you're talking about a congregation that was really more than likely much smaller than this congregation. 
And yet there's a man in this church openly living in sexual immorality with his father's wife. As bad as that is, Paul says, and you've done nothing about it. He said, you haven't mourned, you haven't grieved. He said, in fact, you are puffed up about it. And Paul really, um, really challenged them about dealing with this issue. And they did. And they stepped up and they, they got right and they called the thing out. And the grace of God came flooding in in such power that this man actually repented of his sin and got this right. So in the first letter, Paul's writing to them because they're ignoring the situation. They repent from ignoring it. They do the right thing. And the guy gets right. But now the problem in this letter is that they weren't sure the guy really got right. Did he really, really, really get right? Should we extend back to him the, the full grace of God and, and the full extent of our fellowship? So now Paul writing the first time to challenge them about not dealing with an issue. Writes them the second time because now they're not going far enough in restoring him. And he says, you need to forgive him and you need to extend that. He said, lest Satan should get a foothold, an advantage over you in your church. And then he said this, we're not ignorant of his devices. One of the great devices, one of the schemes, one of the plots of Satan that he will use to wreak havoc. And by the way, Paul is writing this to the family of God. But the same issues we deal with in the family of God, we deal with in our own families, in our own homes. And in our own relationships. And so Paul is warning them and he's cautioning them about how Satan may get an advantage of them if they're not exercising forgiveness. Now before we can really talk adequately about how to forgive and what that means, I think first we got to deal with what forgiveness is not. I think a reason a lot of people don't exercise forgiveness and live it out like they should is because there's some confusion over what forgiveness is and what it's not. So first of all, I want you to understand, forgiveness is not memory loss. You say, well, I can't forgive them because I just can't forget. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is mem remembering the sin as forgiven. For example, in the Bible, it says about God, he said, their sins and their iniquities, I will remember no more. Well, we know God is omniscient. We know God's knowledge is not limited. It's not as if God doesn't know that it happened. But God chooses, when he looks at your life, once something has been forgiven, he chooses to see you without that being a part of your life. Man, think of your life with all kinds of sticky notes all over you, with all kinds of things in your life and attributes and things about you and the wrong. And it's like when that thing is forgiven, man, God takes that sticky note off of you and he throws it away. And it's not that he can't remember it, but he remembers it as forgiven. So forgiveness is not forgetting. That would be impossible. None of us would ever be forgiven. Where's the second thing? It's not rolling over. It's, it's letting go. You say, well, I'm not going to forgive them because I'm not going to let them get away with it. I'm not going to let them, you know, walk all over me. Well, forgiveness doesn't excuse their behavior, but it keeps it from damaging your heart. It keeps it from afflicting you. I believe it was Corey Tinboom that was speaking on forgiving a Nazi soldier 
who had just brutally treated her and her sister in a concentration camp. And she said this, forgiveness is letting the prisoner go free and realizing that all along you were the prisoner. It's letting go of the hurt. It's letting go. Forgiveness is the path of my own restoration as much as it's the path of the other person's restoration. It's not rolling over. By the way, forgiveness doesn't remove all consequences. Hey, I may go up on a 10-story building and decide that I want to take a leap. I have nothing worth living for. And I get up there and I take one step out. And the very first thing I think about is I have made a terrible mistake. (laughs) And I say, God, I am sorry, will you forgive me? And I receive the forgiveness of God and his joy floods my heart and splat, man, I am done, right? So I may be forgiven, but I'm still going to hit the ground. Because what? There are consequences, good and bad, that really don't necessarily go away. I can be restored to the joy of the Lord. I can be restored to broken relationships. That doesn't mean I don't carry the wounds and the scars of the things that I've done in my life. I've been a follower of Jesus Christ now since I was 20 years old. And uh, so I've been a follower of Christ now for 38 years. There's a whole lot that happened in those first 20 years that I still have the marks of. I still bear the scars of. So it's not the elimination of all consequence. It's not like I'll just get forgiveness. I'll just get forgiveness. Well, you can and you will. But it doesn't mean that you don't bear the consequences of those past behaviors. Fourthly, forgiveness doesn't always lead to reconciliation. As a matter of fact, in Romans 12, 18, it says, If it be possible, as much as lies in you to live peaceably with all men. Just when, because I extend a forgiveness to someone, but they don't reciprocate, you know what? Forgiveness is not always complete reconciliation. It's not always leads to that restoration. I don't have control over that. And I heard someone say this, and if nothing else I get, if you don't take anything away, take this away. This is, this is gold right here. Forgiveness is much more about my relationship with God than my relationship with you. See, my reconciliation to you, my letting go of the offense, my releasing myself from that consequence frees me to know and to worship God without those trappings on my life. So our forgiveness toward others, as hard as it may feel and be sometime, it's more about your relationship with God than it is about your relationship with that person. Now here's a very practical definition of forgiveness. I ran this by my 19-year-old daughter, Annabeth. I always run things by her. I said, how would you view this at your age? And, and she's, you know, she, she's kind of vibing and she's got it all going on. She knows what's going on. And so I ran it by her and, and she was like, yeah. So it passed theological muster of my 19-year-old daughter. She's a thinker. Maybe she just was getting tired of listening to me talk and wanted to let me go. So either way, I got a free pass. But here, really, forgiveness in essence is this. It's giving away my right to collect the debt that you owe me. That's grace. As I work through the process of reconciliation and rebuilding trust. It's giving away my right to collect the debt that you owe me. Man, isn't that what Jesus did for us on the cross? 
Isn't that what the gospel is all about? The message of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Isn't it Jesus giving away his right to collect the debt that we owe him? The sin debt? So forgiveness, and by the way, the word forgive, the core, the root word is the word give. That's grace. It's, it's a gift. So forgiveness is me extending to you the same grace that God has extended to me. It is giving away my right to collect the debt that you owe me as I work through the process of reconciliation and rebuilding trust. And by the way, the act of forgiveness is not the immediate experience of trust. They're two different things. One is an act that I do in obedience to God. One is a process that that takes much time. Sometimes you say, well, I can't forgive because I just don't trust them. I understand that. And the proportion of the offense that has been committed against you is really in proportion to the length of time it may take before that trust can be restored. When I was getting ready to get married 25 years ago, I went to my mother and we were talking. And my mother did not do well with relationships in her life. She just, she just did not do well. And I said to her, I said, Mom, that's what he thinks the most important thing in marriage. And with a second she asked me, She said, trust. She said, if you don't have trust, you really have nothing at all. She says, because you don't know if anything else is real without trust. Trust is valuable. Trust is precious. And there's an element of trust that is lost when we live in offense against someone. And forgiveness is the first step It's not trust restored. It's the beginning of the process of trust being restored. So it goes like this. You owe me a debt. I release the debt against you. That's grace. And then God begins because of the experience of grace that you received to transform and change your heart. That's what the gospel does. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. And the gospel is not just the diving board into Christian life, as J.D. Sumner says. It's the whole swimming pool. And so forgiveness is me living out the gospel, living out the message that I have received from Christ. You see, forgiveness and my salvation with Jesus when I receive the gospel, hey, it's not a get out of hell free card that I stick in my wallet until one day I take it out tattered and a little worn and I hand it to Jesus and say, there, I did it. I did that. That's salvation's not the diving board that gets me into the Christian life. It's the entire swimming pool of the Christian life. And I live that entire life out of the grace that's been given to me by Jesus Christ. And that's the only reason I'm even able to forgive people when I've been hurt and I've been damaged. I can do it because of Christ. So you have offended me. I release you from that debt of grace. And God, through that grace, begins the process of transforming your life and mine in regaining and restoring that trust. So forgiveness is vital. It is critical. Forgiveness is ground zero of the Christian life. It's the soil from which our Christian life uh, came. 
It is the seed, it is the birth, it is the beginning. It is the atmosphere of the air that we breathe in our lungs spiritually as Christians. A Christian life without the atmosphere of exercising forgiveness. Man, that's not the life as God intends for it to be lived. So that's a powerful, powerful thing. So the question is, how do we work through this process from that act of forgiveness to that experience of trust and everything that's in between how do we even get there well the first thing we have to do and this is critical is that we accept the inevitability of conflict you see it's not if it's when conflict's going to arise in your life It's not if you will need to forgive, it is when will you need to forgive. Now the Corinthian issue, the issue in that church, it was about adultery. It was about a guy who's living in adultery with his father's wife. And and you know that, that's like high level, that is egregious, that is just, we see that as a horrible thing. But you know sometimes forgiveness, it's about the little things in life. It's about the simple things in life. Sometimes it's about something as simple as this. Anybody ever have toilet paper issues in your home? It's this last year. Oh, last year we all had toilet paper issues in our home. That's good, yeah. Couldn't get any, right? And we're using newspaper. No, I'm just kidding. All right. Well, here's the deal. Hey, it may be, does it come down the front side? Does it come down the backside? It may be whether you fold the corners when you put a new roll because you like to think in your house that you live in a Holiday Inn. In our house, it's simply about putting the toilet paper back on the roll when you've used up the last roll. My wife and I have been married 25 years. This is a continual issue in our marriage. You see, I sit down, the roll is there. When the roll's gone, I don't know if many of you have, we got the thing here that's the stack, right? It's like an auto five shotgun. It just shoots it right back in. Should be spring loaded. To me, I can pull it off of here. I can pull it out of here. What's the difference? It's there and I get toilet paper. My wife doesn't see it like that. And it can lead to problems in marriage. Hey, the Corinthians may have been having, and we'll get back to that later, they, they may have been problems with adultery, but I want you to understand, you say, well, this message isn't for me because that's not something in my home, and you know what? I hope adultery never comes into your home, but it might. It could. You see, it's not about the if of conflict and failure. It's about the when, and it's not about the size. It's about The principle, big things, little things. Solomon said that it is the little foxes that spoil the vine. It's those little things in life sometimes that just nip away at us, man, and just rob us of the strength and the joy that God wants us to live with. You see, conflict comes to us, it's inevitable, but the issue is how will we deal with conflict when it comes? You know, one of the biggest problems maybe with dealing with conflict is that we, um, we talk too much. Gary Chapman wrote well, many good books, but one of the books he wrote is called The Marriage You Always Wanted. And in this book, The Marriage You Always Wanted, there's a chapter on, communi- on talking. And, and one of the things he makes, he said, sometimes we just talk too much. 
there's a problem. I go to my wife and I say, we need to have a talk. She wants to go on vacation to Maine. I want to go on vacation to the mountains in Georgia. And, and I'm irritated. We need to have a talk. Or she comes to me and says, we need to have a talk. What that means to me is I'm going to lecture you. Not about you. We don't like lectures. How many of you, when you were a teenager and your mom and dad came in the room and said, we need to have a talk? You say, oh, it's so wonderful. My mom and dad want to have a talk. They want to bond with me. Now you're like, oh, what did I do now, right? Well, we're not a whole lot different now than when we were as teenagers. You really don't change that much. Our senior adult ministry in our church is called the Joy Ministry, and Joy stands for Just Older Youth. And my experience is, man, as people get older, they just turn back into teenagers. Teenagers want to sit on the back row. You know, they want to pass notes. They want to share candy. Senior adults in our church want to sit on the back row. They want to exchange notes. And they want to, and they want to talk while I'm preaching. I hear them back there because they can't hear themselves anymore. And they're like, what did he say? We had a guy, he was a missionary in Peru for 47 years named Paul Mulling, and he was a Bible scholar. And I would say something he would disagree with, I'd hear him back there, that's not right. And, and all the senior adults would circle around him, and he'd be giving them a Bible study while what I was saying wasn't right. And he, he was great, he was, I loved him, he went to heaven about two years ago, I miss him dearly. But you know what? We didn't like being lectured when we were a teenager. Why do you suppose you would like being lectured now? Chapman says we talk too much. You know, the wisdom of Scripture talks about the importance of being careful with our words. James 1.19, and James is really the, the kind of book of Proverbs of the New Testament. It's the wisdom literature of the New Testament. And James said in 1.19... He said, wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. Let your words be few, slow to wrath. And you see the progression in that verse? It goes from not listening to speaking to what? Wrath. He said, slow down that speaking. And you know what in turn we're doing is we're slowing down the wrath. The book of Proverbs in the Old Testament, Solomon is writing to his son about the wisdom of life and just kind of life lessons for your son. Did a series on this book a couple years ago called The Best Advice Ever. Just, just advice from Solomon. And the theme of the book or the, the underlying content of the book is, is wisdom. But in that book, that wisdom book, the key concept is listen. Four times he said to his son, hearken to me, listen. Eleven times he said, hear. Eleven times he said, give me your ear. Twenty-five times in that book he said, and in many other ways, my son, give me your heart. Give me your attention. Listen to me. Seek treasure, seek wisdom as a hidden treasure. Bend your ear to me. Incline your listening to me. And what's the theme of the book? It's wisdom. See, one of the reasons that we do not deal with conflict as well as we should is because we're too busy talking. Chapman described, he said, now we're having a problem, my wife and I, we're having a problem over toilet paper, right? He didn't talk about toilet paper. So rather than we need to have a talk, 
He said, how much more powerful would it be if you went to your wife and said, "Hon, I'd like to listen to what you have to say about the toilet paper issue. I don't want to talk about it. I want to listen. Man, how disarming is that, right? She's ready to, to go to Fist City with me, right? Not literally. We don't go to Fist City. Emotionally, some, no, really, yeah. We have our moments, but she's never struck me. So I've never had to defend myself. So anyway. But the reality is, what a, what a letting the wall down. I mean, I'd like to listen to you. You see, by listening, I seek to understand your opinion. It shows that I value what you have to say. And it can lead to a solution. But when I'm not listening, I don't really care to understand you, which means I devalue you, which means that we are never going to arrive at a solution. Sometimes, he said, we just talk too much. But to come to an agreement, we just need to stop talking. Conflict is inevitable. It's how we deal with it. And really, 90% of it would probably go away if we just quit talking, if we just quit asserting our will, and we just listen, we just listen. So we accept the inevitability of conflict. It's so important to understand that we're living in a life where conflict's a part of our life. It doesn't catch us off guard. We don't think it's a strange thing when conflict comes. We understand it's just a normal part of living. But here's the next thing. We need to learn to deal with the fallout of unresolved conflict because not all conflict is resolved and when it's not resolved properly it leads to fallout look at the corinthian church they have this issue of immorality adultery going on and they're not dealing with it man it led to pride in the church it led to disunity in church man the the corinthian church was known for its disunity and its infighting It, it, it led to gossiping in the church you know how paul even found out about the problems at corinth in chapter one of uh, 1 Corinthians 1, he said there was a lady from the church named Chloe. Some people from her house came and told him about all the problems going on in Corinth. So you got this church, it's full of pride, it's full of division. Man, you got this church and it's gossip. It's just, it's just a terrible, terrible place. And I have no idea why people when they start a church would call it 1 Corinthians Baptist Church. It's like, are you crazy? Have you read the Bible? You see... We need to be able to deal with it. 1 Corinthians 5, 2, right after he talked about what was going on with this guy with his stepmother, he said, and you are puffed up or you're prideful. And you have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. Prideful. But then when they finally deal with it, Paul comes to them. He says, you haven't been dealing with the problem. They deal with the problem. Man, the grace of God comes flooding into the situation. And this guy, this guy is not only so wicked that he's sleeping with his dad's wife. He doesn't care who knows about it. No shame whatsoever. But he goes from this immorality to mourning over it. What a transformation. You say, what happened? It's because they lowered the boom, they put the law down? No, it's because the grace of God came flooding into the situation and they were able to resolve it. And in this text, you know, you see this whole thing. 
Paul gives them three words in verses 7 and 8 that really have to take place if we're going to experience full and lasting um, reconciliation in our conflict. It's the word forgive. The second word is comfort. And the third word is confirm. Look at verses 7 and 8. So that contrary wise, you ought rather to forgive him and comfort him. Lest perhaps such an one should be swallowed up. That word swallowed up there, it's often translated. It's translated in 1 Peter 5, how the Satan seeks to devour us. She says you need to forgive him and you need to comfort him so that he's not devoured by Satan because we're not ignorant of his devices, right? And then he went on, he said you need to comfort him so he isn't swallowed up with much sorrow. And in verse 8 he said, wherefore I beg you, I beseech you, I plead with you that you would confirm your love toward him. Practical steps, we see the situation, we understand forgiveness, we see the reality of conflict. Well now what's the practical application of us right near and today? It's three things. You forgive, you comfort, and you confirm. Good advice to a church, good advice to a family, good advice to individual relationships. You see, first of all, resolving conflict requires an act of forgiveness. 2 Corinthians 2.10, Paul said, to whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For if I forgave anything, to whom I forgave it, for your sakes I forgave it in the person of Christ. You know what Paul was saying in that verse? There's a lot going back and forth. He says, I'm not there. I don't even know this guy. I have no emotional attachment whatsoever. But I can forgive him because I can forgive him because you have dealt with this and you believe he should be forgiven. You know what we see there? Forgiveness isn't a feeling. Paul forgave without a feeling. He wasn't there. He didn't even know the man, but he could forgive the man without any attachment whatsoever to him. Forgiveness is not a feeling. And I love what he said at the very end of that verse. He said, I will forgive it in the person of Christ. You see, forgiveness is not a feeling. It's a clear decision to please Jesus Christ. Forgiveness is not an option. Forgiveness is really, it's obedience to Jesus. It's extending to others, as I said, the same grace that's been extended to me. And by the way, it's always about Jesus. It is. From your first breath in the morning to the end of the day, it's about Jesus. Not the diving board, the whole swimming pool, the whole Christian life. It's about what Christ has done for me. It's about extending to you and understanding that the grace that I have experienced requires of me to be gracious to others. I love this quote. A guy said, rather than counting how many times you have had to forgive them, why don't you just stop and count how many times Jesus has had to forgive you? I mean, that just flips the whole equation, does it? You see, because it's, it's more about my relationship with him than it's about my relationship with you. And so I can look at you. I don't know any use here. If, if I was home, I'd grab someone. And, and, and you know what? My wife, I don't want to do that to my wife here. You don't know. You know, I can look at you and I could say, oh, man, 
Bob is ignore, ignoring me again. Any Bobs in here? Yeah, you look like a Bob. Yeah, that was perfect. All right. Yeah, I can. Yeah. Okay, me and you right there. All right. You know what? Bob. How many times, Bob? How many times do I have to forgive Bob? Bob, how many times do you have to keep telling me you're sorry? How about just doing it different, Bob? But you know what? It's not about how many times I have to forgive Bob. How about how many times Christ has had to forgive me? Now I take that attitude to Bob and it's not even about what Bob deserves or doesn't deserve. It's about Christ in me, the hope of glory. See, resolving conflict requires an act of forgiveness. You see, our motive is why Christ forgave us. Ephesians 4.32 says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, with all evil. And be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How? Even as God for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. I wasn't forgiven because I deserved it. I was forgiven because of the grace of Jesus Christ that he extended from the cross to me. So resolving conflict requires an act of forgiveness. Secondly, it requires a context of sincerity. He said, comfort him. That word comfort is to exhort or restore. It's an idea of investment. You see, it's not just me saying, yeah, I forgive you and walking on. No, it's, it's a commitment to sincerity in my forgiveness. It's, it's, it's I, I mean it. It's from the heart. It's a growing thing. Once again, Chapman wrote another great book. This is Chapman Book Selling Morning. And that book, he wrote the five love languages, but he also wrote another book based on research he and another man did called the five apology languages. And he talks about how people show sincerity and apology and receive it different ways. And just real quickly, he said some people do it by ex expressing regret. I'm sorry. Some people it's accepting responsibility, saying I was wrong. Some it's making restitution. I will make it right. Some it's committing to change. I will change. Others it's requesting forgiveness. Will you forgive me? And they're all good and they're all great and they probably all have a place. But which one is most sincere to you? For me, it's accepting responsibility. It's I was wrong. Most sincere thing I can say to you is to say to you, I was wrong. I own it 100%. See, when I was a kid, I was taught number one. I was taught to say, say you're sorry to your sister. Then I became a Christian. They said, don't say you're sorry. You have to ask for forgiveness and they have to answer you. And, and those are good and they're great. But the most sincere apology you will ever get out of me is I was wrong. I promise you, that just is, that's my whole core. It's owning it. And the best and most sincere apology you could ever give me is to own it. I was wrong. No buts about it. Now, my wife, it's a commitment to change. Okay, Mike, you were wrong. Now do something about it. She wants to see a change in that. But there needs to be sincerity. The key is to be sincere, that, a sincerity that will lead to actions and acts of goodwill. So forgive him. Comfort him, sincerity. But then the third thing, resolving conflict requires a commitment to change. 
He said, confirm your love toward him. Confirm it. Ratify it. Make it authoritative. You know what he's saying? The process of forgiveness that leads to reconciliation and restored trust, it doesn't happen instantly. It requires you being willing to confirm your love by your commitment to work through the situation. Because trust isn't restored automatically. Another great book that I recommend to people that maybe there's been infidelity in the marriage or sexual sin. It's a tremendous book. It's called Worthy of Her Trust. It's about restoring and regaining trust. But it can be applied, the principles, to so many situations. And in the book, he begins telling about a biblical story, the Apostle Paul. And in chapter 9 of the book of Acts, God speaks to a man named Ananias. And he says, I want you to go to Saul and I want you to baptize him. I want you to pour into his life. And Ananias answers the Lord in Acts 9, 13. He says, Lord, I've heard by many of this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem and how he has authority from the chief priest to bind all that call on your name. You see what's going on there? God says, go to him. He's a follower of mine. And even with God telling him, Ananias is like, I don't trust him. See, that trust wasn't immediate. He had heard about Paul's hurtfulness to Christians. He heard how he had authority to imprison Christians. Lord, I, I don't trust, Lord. I think God puts his trust in people a whole lot sooner than we do in the process of forgiveness. The next verse, God says, but... The Lord said to him, go your way. He goes to Saul, who would become the apostle Paul. And he goes to him, and by verse 17, at least God's work enough in his life, when he gets to him, he actually calls him Brother Saul. So he's probably not all the way there yet, but there's a kind of a, it's like, I don't trust him to, okay, Brother Saul. And he baptizes him, and Paul's blindness goes away. And Paul immediately begins preaching Christ openly. And it says the people were amazed that this one who had once persecuted the faith is now is preaching Christ. He preached Christ so well and so convictingly that the non-believers wanted to kill him. And he fled for his life out of Damascus and he went three years down into Arabia. And the only reason we know it's three years is because in Galatians chapter 1, Paul told us he was there three years. And he basically is in, the, in Arabia for three years with a, having a Bible study and prayer meeting with Jesus. And after three years, we learn in, in, in Galatians, he returns and he continues preaching Christ. And here's Paul, the great persecutors of Christians. I had such hope for Kanye. I thought maybe it's another Apostle Paul. He did his album, you know. But here's Paul. No one wanted to believe it was the real thing. And he's down there. And he comes back to the Christians and he says, look at me. I'm, I'm returned. And you think, man, they'd be throwing a party. They'd be striking up the band. Man, they would think this is miraculous. The hero Paul is back. Man, his life has been changed, but it's not really what happened. Because it says in verse 23, after he returned, look at verse 26. When Saul was come to Jerusalem, 
He attempted to join himself to the disciples. But look at this, three years later. But they were afraid of him. And they believed not that he was a disciple. Trust is not immediate. Here's Saul, the confirmation of God, the confirmation of life. Three years of time. Yet what he did was so hurtful to them. Maybe it was one of their family members that had been in prison, maybe lost their life. And yet they didn't believe. But what I'm trying to say to you is it's a confirmation of love. It's a process of time. You know, I talked about my wife and I, the the toilet paper issue. And it was about two and a half or three years ago that I was sitting in the living room watching TV, my feet up on the ottoman, and my wife comes walking out of the hallway mad with an empty toilet paper roll in her hand saying, who didn't refill the toilet paper? I was like, I didn't. What's the big deal? You grab it here, you grab it there. You know, who made refilling the toilet paper an act of righteousness? You know, I'm just like mocking her almost. I'm like, and she says, I says, why does it matter? And she said, because it shows love for me, because it's important to me. And when you don't do it, you're not showing love for me. I was like, oh, oh. And I thought, man, I got to do something about this. So I set it up perfectly because it was just after that at church, maybe it was a week or so, and we were going to be talking about the importance of reconciliation. And I called her up and I had a roll of toilet paper there. And I sat her in a chair and I was sitting there and I was like, honey, and we talked through the problem. I wanted people to see it. And I said, honey, I commit to you today that I am going to fill the toilet paper from now on. You can count on me. It only took 22 years of marriage. Now, honey, before that day, would you, did you believe at all that I would refill that toilet paper? How about that day when I told you I did? Do you think I was really going to do it or do you think it was just a good sermon illustration? <laughs> sermon illustration. Now today, do you believe that I will refill the toilet paper? Absolutely. Because I repented. And I refill the toilet paper. We're staying over in the guest house and they have this tricky thing to refill the, it's got a spring-loaded action thing. And I could tell because I saw an empty roll there and a roll sitting there. I thought, oh, Cheryl couldn't figure out how to put it on there. I'm going to come after her now. And I did not. I just reached over, took it off. and Even yesterday, I refilled the toilet paper and I wasn't even the one who emptied it. She was. Forgiveness is the atmosphere in which we live as Christians. And, you know, may his favor be upon your family and your children and their children and their children. It's never going to happen until we're willing to deal with the unforgiveness in our lives and extend that grace to others.